0: When you hear about massive data breaches, like the ones from LinkedIn, MySpace, or Ashley Madison, how can you find out whether your own data was compromised? Troy Hunt created the website haveibeenpwned.com to answer this question. When a major data breach occurs, Troy acquires a copy of the stolen data and provides a safe way for individuals to check if their credentials have been stolen. Troy is an expert on data breaches, and he works as a regional director at Microsoft. Our conversation explores passwords, IoT security, Stuxnet, and the dark, bizarre world of data breaches. It's a really fascinating conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. Before we get to this episode, a few quick announcements. If you're interested in advertising on Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. There are more than 14,000 engineers that listen to Software Engineering Daily on a regular basis, so it's a great place to get your product out into the ears of developers or to advertise available jobs that you might have at your company. Also, if you're an engineer that's looking for an open-source project to work on, check out Software Daily at softwaredaily.com. This is an open-source news and information site about software, It's being led by Jeff Tribble, a member of the Software Engineering Daily community. You can also check out SoftwareEngineeringDaily.com, which is the website for this podcast. You can find links to the Slack channel, my Twitter account, my email. You can find a link to sign up for our newsletter, Software Weekly. And with that, let's get to today's episode. Troy Hunt is a regional director at Microsoft and the creator of the site HaveIBeenPwned.com. Troy, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Have I been Pwned is a website that allows users to check if their email or their username has been compromised in a data breach. Tell me the story behind starting this project.
1: So going back to 2013, uh, I was doing a, a bunch of data analysis on, on breaches, looking at things like common trends across incidents. So uh, do we have the same people in multiple incidents with, say, the same password? Or, or another good example is something like the Adobe data breach, which has password hints. Does that actually disclose the password itself, which may then be reflected in other breaches as well? And at that time, I thought, wow, it's it's really interesting that we keep seeing the same people over and over again. You know, you get this one identity in multiple incidents. I wonder if uh, if it would be interesting for people to actually have this service where they can go and search and, and see their exposure. And and Adobe, this one hundred and fifty two million uh, record breach in twenty thirteen was really the catalyst for that.
0: Can you explain where you got the data for from the Adobe breach and? What put you in the situation where you were doing this type of research?
1: Yeah, um, easy. The data was everywhere. <laughs> so in certain incidents, an incident like Adobe or or more recently an incident like Ashley Madison last year, the data gets redistributed really, really broadly. So often it's it's torrented. So it's it's out there. It's redistributed peer to peer. There's no sort of putting the genie back in the bottle if you like. Uh, and it can be really, really easy to come by large amounts of information like that.
0: So it's on, like, Tor sites, uh, I guess, Pastebin, other public-facing sites like that?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, if it's peer-to-peer, it's being redistributed between clients, but there'll be links to the torrents uh, on places like Pastebin. Uh, It'll be redistributed Mm. via Twitter. Uh, Look, I mean, how how do links get redistributed, right? (laughs) There are plenty of different places (laughs) they pop up.
0: Fair enough. Okay, so... Let's talk a little bit about Have I Been Pwned. Can you explain what the site is for people who don't know? Yeah, look, it's
1: really just a data breach aggregation service. So there are, at the moment, I think there's about 120-something data breaches in the site. So, you know, Adobe, which we just mentioned, is one of them. LinkedIn got breached. Uh, MySpace got breached. When these incidents occur and this data does become uh, broadly distributed, I, I obtain the data, I load it into the site, and then you go to the site, you enter your email address, and it says, hey, you appeared in this incident or that incident. Uh, you probably want to go and change your passwords and all the rest of it. And just as a precaution as well, I make sure that sites that are particularly sensitive, so something like Ashley Madison, which can have life-changing impacts on the people who are in that data breach, are not publicly searchable. Uh, So you have to go and verify your identity and then you get a a link to your email address and you can see your exposure. So there's always this little bit of a challenge for me as well about how do we balance out the usability of the service and lower the barrier to entry, uh, but also make sure that we respect people's privacy and and not sort of put people in a position that could jeopardize them.
0: So if I search for my email address, at gmail.com it will turn up that my account has been breached on LinkedIn, but my Ashley Madison account will remain private uh, unless I verify my identity through the service.
1: Hypothetically, if you had an Ashley Madison account, <laughs> yeah, it would, it'd do exactly that.
0: <laughs> yes, hypothetically indeed. So uh, these big breaches like companies from Adobe to LinkedIn to MySpace – how do these companies typically get breached?
1: Well, look, there's not sort of, uh, I guess, one way that is always the the attack vector, if you like. But typically, we will see risks such as SQL injection. Uh, so this is a, a really well-known, really well-established risk that's been uh, very comprehensively documented for a couple of decades now yet we see time and time and time again SQL injection flaws in software either bespoke software that an organization has built for uh, for their own specific business purpose or we see it consistently in products off the shelf so we particularly see it in cheap or free forum products and the the, the problem then is that someone goes out and they get themselves one of these forum products, uh, stand it up on their site, start collecting user data, and then they just leave it and they never update it when there's any sort of a security patch or or other update that they should have in order to protect their security. So SQL injection is, is a really, really common one. Other times we might see anything from uh, default credentials on an FTP server through to open FTP, through to insider threats, uh, where we might have someone inside the organization that walks out metaphorically with uh, the data.
0: So SQL injection, Uh, many people probably have heard that term, but may not know exactly what it is. Can you explain what a SQL injection means?
1: Yeah, I'll give you a really good sort of simple example. So you go to a website and in the query string of the URL, you see something like ID equals one. Now, underneath that somewhere in the code, uh, the the developer has said, okay, well, when someone goes to this website and they say, you know, widgets uh, question mark ID equals one, I'm going to now construct a query which says something like select star from widgets where ID equals one. And that one is going to come out of the query string and we're going to build that up in our SQL query. And the problem with SQL injection is what tends to happen is in the code somewhere, there is uh, a string somewhere, which is defined as uh, something like select star from widget where ID equals. And then they go, okay, so when this code executes, we're going to use that string. And then we're going to concatenate onto the end of that string, the ID out of the query string. And, And this kind of makes sense in in the context of well, look, we just this is a data-driven website, we're just going to get this piece of information, whack it on the end of the string. the The problem is is that if they're not actually validating that input and an attacker changes one to something else, so imagine that they have one and then they put, say, uh, a semicolon to close off the statement and then they say drop table widgets, right? <laughs> so now now you've got two mm-hmm. statements. And that's sort of a really simplistic view of it, but that would execute this arbitrary piece of SQL. And there are multiple different types of SQL injection attack, but in its most basic form, you might, for example, see, I mean, if we make it a little bit different and say something like uh, rather than ID equals one, you put in a select statement in there, which selects the first password out of the first table and tries to cast the password as an integer And it's probably not going to be an integer, so the database throws an exception. The web application doesn't handle it very well, and it shows that exception in the browser. uh, And the exception contains the the value of the password, because database servers uh, like MySQL or like SQL Server uh, will be very, very friendly and tell you exactly what went wrong. And when you return that to the web app, uh, then you disclose something internal. And a lot of this just boils down to the simple fact that they're not using parameterized queries. And all of our major programming languages have this construct of parameterization in our queries where rather than just taking that one and adding it to the end of the string and then the next line down doesn't know what's the query and what's the data, we have this construct where we can create a a query and say, look, there's going to be a parameter here. And then we're going to pass that parameter through as, as a separate object, as a separate uh, logical unit of the query itself, uh, and, and you're not going to be able to simply break out of that data context and change the structure of the
0: query. So, does this type of attack lead to even companies like LinkedIn or uh, you know these companies where you imagine they have a significant security team that are observing the API? Uh, you know the outward facing things that could result in SQL injections uh even companies like linkedin are 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 subject to SQL injection attacks or are there more sophisticated attacks that are uh leading to data breaches at places like that
1: uh, yes so, so so yes to everything so oh. to, yeah first of all there's there's no real hard evidence that larger organizations are any more secure than smaller organizations or or vice versa. And what we find is that ultimately we end up with, uh, with groups of people sitting down writing code. It's, it's, it's humans and those <laughs> humans work for the largest organizations in the world. And I've seen some of them in, the, in some of the largest organizations in the world too. Uh, as well as sitting there working in, in sort of one-man shops where they're just sitting there building code on their own. So the size of the organization really doesn't have any influence on that. Uh, which, which is really it, – it's a shame because large organisations obviously have uh, better access to resources such as uh, security teams and penetration testers and tools that can help automate this. But we're not really seeing that, that, um, that change at all. So, yeah, certainly that's, that's part of it. The other part of it is that we do see more sophisticated attacks in cases where there's a larger uh, value, if you like, in compromising the organisation. So think about something like Target, where Target got compromised, you know, tens of millions of credit cards stolen uh, by virtue of, uh, of an HVAC supplier. So the third party that was connected to their network to do the sort of heating and cooling and everything else. But they had enough uh, access rights uh, into the Target organization that you know, some actor compromised them and then pivoted around until they got to uh, uh, somewhere they could grab cards.
0: Okay. So given that it is so easy to hack into many of these organs, or I shouldn't say it's easy, but it happens. How do these companies typically respond?
1: Look, a variety of ways. And I guess incident response, for, for want of a better term, is, is really interesting when you look at the, the spectrum of, of how organizations resp- uh, sort of behave here. So Look, some of them uh, some of them try to cover it up. <laughs> so uh, we, we've seen cases uh, where organisations say, look, we actually thought it was better not to tell anyone. You know, yeah, you thought it was better for you, not for the people who are actually on the data breach. So that happens sometimes. And, of course, depending on where you are in the world, you may be subject to regulatory requirements, which, uh, which have mandatory disclosure laws. Uh, but when, particularly when we're talking about sort of smaller organisations or uh, countries outside the, the sort of typical, you know, sort of EU, US, Australia kind of regions, uh, often the laws are a little bit more lax uh, and often the propensity for organisations to want to disclose is, is not quite the same. So we see that on the, on the one extreme. Uh, I guess on the other extreme, the most positive responses we see are where organisations say, uh, look, here's what happened, here's what we know, here's what we're doing to fix it, and they're quite transparent about it. And in, in reality, we, we sort of see most organisations fit somewhere in between where they don't want to sort of show their hand too much in terms of explaining what's going on, in part because often they're doing forensic investigations as well to figure out what on earth actually happened to their, their application. Uh, in part, also, we often see them just not quite understanding the, the impact on people in there. So a good example would be uh, they won't tell you how they hashed their passwords. Uh, and this is important because a lot of people go, well, you know, I want to know. And inevitably, this is more technical people who then understand uh, how good or bad, if you like, that approach to cryptographic storage was. But very often, organizations are not sort of getting the fact that, uh, look, disclosing something like that is not really a security risk in any way. But they just kind of, you know, clam up. uh, Corporate affairs is communicating now. Here's the press releases. Here's the media statements. That's it.
0: It does basically seem like the more disclosure, the better. And this is not necessarily an intuitive notion for companies. I have seen a talk from you and – You discussed this one company where they responded to a massive breach of user accounts by silently forcing all of their users to update their password. (laughs) They didn't say why. They just said, look, uh, update your password. You might want to just do it. Why doesn't this response make sense?
1: To be honest, this was one of the worst responses. And look, if you, if you Google around, you'll but find But well-intentioned.
0: It was well-intentioned.
1: No, you know what? I don't think it was. I really don't think it was. I think oh, it these, wasn't? Okay. I think <laughs> this, this was just an outright ass-covering exercise. You know, like we do not want people to know that we've had a data breach, so we're not going to tell them because their excuse was, if we tell people we've had a data breach, then the hackers are going to exploit their accounts faster. You know, they're going to get in and do it now, which was just a a ridiculous position to take because the reality of it is as soon as this data is exposed, people's accounts start getting compromised, not necessarily the accounts on the site itself, which wasn't particularly high value, but the attackers will take those credentials and they'll go and check Gmail and Facebook uh, and banks and other places where they have a value And what these guys did by not letting people know that their account was compromised is they left all of those attack avenues wide open. So if they had said, hey, we've been compromised and customers could go, all right, uh, they've had an issue. Now I need to think about where I've reused my password, what else I might have exposed, anything that might have actually been exposed of value on the site itself. Things like birth dates and genders and other sort of pieces of information that are used for identity theft purposes. If they had sort of said that and individuals then could have gone and mitigated their risk somewhere else, it would have been a very different story. But in, in this case, I'm without a shadow of a doubt convinced they were just trying to look after themselves and not the customers.
0: You've mentioned that the public perception of what a hacker is, who a hacker is, maybe like a guy in a hoodie or somebody from mm-hmm. Anonymous, these perceptions may not be correct in most cases. How does the perception of what a hacker is differ from the reality?
1: <laughs> it's it's interesting. So I've got this uh, – I'm doing a talk next week where I've got um, a Google Images search. And it's just a search for hacker. And Go, go and do this at <laughs> home, folks. So It's kind of funny, right? So you go and search for hacker. And all the images that come back are like hoodies and green screen and Guy Fawkes masks and binary and stuff flying all over the screen. And this is the perception we get. And the reality of it is often very different. And there was a really interesting case in the UK last year where uh, they had a very large telco, TalkTalk, uh, Talk got hacked. And after they got hacked, there was this statement in the press where this detective says, yeah, you know, we've, we've looked at this very, very serious cybercrime incident. Uh, we think it was Russian Islamic cyber jihadis. And, and first of all, <laughs> in terms of scaring people like that is a really, really scary title. So clearly they're sort of trying to set the tone of of how dark and sinister this is. And then as it all came out in the wash in the following days and weeks, it emerged that it was actually a 15-year-old kid, uh, who you assume is in his bedroom because where else are you going to be, right, when you're a 15-year-old kid hacking stuff? Uh, And then there was a couple of 16-year-old kids and it was just, you know, this was the reality. It was children breaking into stuff and children are really effective at breaking into stuff. Because they're curious, they've got time on their hands, they don't really have a a sense of social consequence, and they can go and download free tools like SQL Map, and then SQL Map can just go through and and rip a site to pieces. They just put in a URL, they say go, all the data comes out, and... That's that's it. Uh, in fact, in that talk I'm doing next week, I am going to, this is a, this is a scoop. <laughs> no one else knows this yet. I'm going to have my six-year-old son there. And my six-year-old son is going to show how to uh, hack a website and pull all the data out uh, because he knows how to copy and paste. <laughs> and, and that's about the extent of his hacking prowess, but that's enough.
0: Wow. What a uh, prodigy. Um, you know, I did this interview with a guy named Adrian Lamo a while ago, and he's this really interesting character. He was actually the guy that uh, unmasked um, uh, Chelsea Manning uh, as the um, the person who was the WikiLeaker. But before that, he was this hacker. He was like a hacker for hire. Uh, well, actually, not hacker for hire. He would, he would just be a friendly hacker. He would hack into places like, I think, Time Warner or Citibank or these places. This was, like, back in the 90s, I think. And he used—basically, he would just, like, go to a Kinko's and log into a computer there and just click around and find stuff. And this was when he was a teenager. He didn't even need a terminal. Um, It was basically just curiosity and kind of counterintuitive thinking that allowed him to hack into sites. So I think, like, another misconception is that many times— You know, they don't necessarily even know that much about computer science or software engineering. It's just they know some really rudimentary uh, hammer and everything looks like a nail to them and eventually they find a nail.
1: Um, Yeah, that's true. And and certainly there's enough information out there as well for people to be very effective doing that. One of the other things that we've seen works really well in this sort of hacktivist genre uh, of hacker, if you like, Uh, And and we're typically talking young males, sort of late teens, early 20s. Uh, Some of them have a a, a sort of greater sense of duty or purpose, if you like. So, you know, sometimes they generally uh, have activist desires. But we've seen them uh, very effective at social engineering as well. So really, really good at phoning up a company, uh, eliciting information from them, uh, pretending to be the victim to get little pieces of data, uh, using really creative ways uh, of gaining access to systems. So whilst on the one hand, I'm I'm conscious that a lot of them don't actually have much technical capability, uh, on the other hand, they can be really resourceful and really creative.
0: Yeah, I mean, speaking of social engineering, I've... Seen, I, I remember when I was in like middle school or high school, I would have friends that uh, would create, you know, these big fleets of sock puppet accounts and, you know, artificial AIM accounts and just have these networks of multiple identities communicating with one another in order to do stupid pranks and stuff. But thinking back, if they would have applied that stuff to rudimentary hacking, they probably could have gotten somebody's financial credentials or. Something like that. Um, But, I mean, talk a little more about the kinds of tools or programming knowledge that a teenager needs to be equipped with, or maybe a six-year-old. Like, if you Mm -hmm. only need copy and paste, do you you need copy and paste in conjunction with some other off-the-shelf tools? Or what do you need in order to hack a site like LinkedIn or MySpace (laughs) or Ashley Madison?
1: Well, I guess first of all, for all three of those incidents, there's not public information on how the attack actually happened. So we, we don't know in those specific cases uh, exactly what went down. Uh, we could certainly speculate, but I, I guess sort of getting back to the the, the question of, of how, to, how do these large online web presences get hacked? Uh, a lot of these freely available automated tools, so I mentioned SQL Map, which is extremely powerful, uh, are easily accessible online. So you just download, run them, and there's also a lot of tutorials out there. And in the case of something like SQL Map, uh, and in fact, I'm recording a course next week where I'm going to show this, one of the things you can do with a product like that is you can feed a Google dork into it. So a Google dork being a a Google search that returns uh, very particular results, often results that uh, the owners of the site may not want being found. So you can do a Google Doc and say something like, uh, give me me all the URLs for .gov websites that have uh, question mark ID equals, so a query string parameter in them. And now go and point this automated tool at the results. And and all of this is just bundled into one command. So the one command can use Google to find potentially vulnerable sites and actually point the SQL injection tool at it. And it's got the parameters to route it through Tor while you're doing that so that you get anonymization as well. And once you sort of tie all these things together, suddenly it's it's one command that's very easy to prepare, that's easy to find on the Internet because there's plenty of people that have done tutorials on this. And you set it going, and and that's it. You know, you go outside and play. <laughs> and there is actually a video I showed during this, where a, a guy's doing a, a very ineffective uh, attack, but he's sort of saying, "This takes a while, so go outside and play <laughs> while it's running." And you're going, "Oh man, like who are these people that we're dealing with? They're yeah, uh, they're, they're obviously not exactly um, uh, mature adults."
0: So it sounds like basically. If you create an insecure site and it has some modicum of popularity <clears throat> such that it gets indexed on Google, your vulnerability will be found. It's not like you can sort of hide from it.
1: Well, certainly you have to work on the assumption that it will be found. And one of the fascinating things about the web is how, how easy it is to find information, uh, which we know, like, I mean, we, we can go in and Google stuff, but how easy it is to find information very specifically around vulnerabilities. Uh, so if you go and uh, do a Google search for things like the Google Hacking Database, which has Google Docs, so these carefully crafted search terms, that turn up everything from database backups to password files and all sorts of other things. And then more recently, one of the things that, that's really fascinating about the internet, and, and you can blow hours on this, folks, is to use uh, Shodan. So that's uh, Shodan, dot io, And Shodan is a search engine for the Internet of Things, And it's continually crawling the internet, crawling through the IPv4 address space, and then port scanning and saying what ports are open, what's running on this service. And it does things like uh, you can do an image search, uh, which shows screen caps of all the machines that have, say, RDP or VNC running, many of them with anonymous access enabled. They're misconfigured remote desktop instances. And you scroll through these screen caps, and you're seeing everything from private webcams through to industrial control systems, where you can then just uh, just click the click the image, go to the uh, go to the further details about it, see the IP address, see the port that's open, open up your own VNC or RDP session, and and now you've got control of anything from a water filtration plant through to a, a crematorium. Is one of the ones that's shown up there, and and that is it's just it's both scary and fascinating.
0: Wow. Okay. So I do want to get to the internet of things a little bit later, but talking more about these regular old hacks where I'm a hacker and I acquire a payload of usernames and passwords. Is there a straightforward way to convert that payload to money?
1: So there's a few different ways we see this typically happen. And one of the ways, and this has sort of popped up a lot recently with the likes of LinkedIn and MySpace, is the entire data breach gets monetized. Uh, so we saw a little while back, uh, LinkedIn in particular was was listed up there for about five Bitcoin, I think it was at the time. Uh, and I, th- I think it was at two and a half grand in today's money, two and a half thousand US dollars. And uh, that is one way. So, you know, here's this data, I have it for sale, please give me Bitcoin. And inevitably, that gets sold over and over and over again. Uh, Other times, it's it's a little bit less direct. So we might see uh, people using this data to compromise an account and then uh, possibly send out spam, and they're they're charging for their services to to send spam. Other times, it it may be even more nefarious where we're now sort of getting into sort of the uh, identity theft realm. Uh, A friend of mine in the US just recently had her SIM card uh, stolen, And, and this is a metaphorically stolen as well where someone had enough information about her, possibly from a data breach, called up the telco uh, and pretended to be her and managed to get uh, the number transferred to another provider. And uh, so now they've got the phone number, they can do things like when they get phone calls from their bank about are you sure you want to transfer this money, You know, it's the attacker answering and they're like, yeah, (laughs) go for it, transfer the money away. So we're seeing lots of different mechanisms of monetization out there.
0: Wow, okay, so the story of the phone makes me wonder so i was going to ask if the password is an outdated security security mechanism maybe you can tell me your answer to that i'm guessing yes but in any case what about two factor authentication i mean so i don't know give me your spiel on on security in terms of passwords and two factor authentication
1: well, a lot of issues there. I mean, one in terms of it being an outdated concept, it, it sort of implies that there is something newer that, that replaces this, and and the reality of it is there's not. Uh, we don't have a replacement for passwords. And as much as some organizations like to claim that they've now got the right solution, they've, they've built the thing which will kill passwords, it has never happened. Probably the closest we've got to that is having less of them by virtue of social logins. So you can go and use your Facebook or your Twitter or whatever uh, to, to log in to, to websites rather than creating a new set of credentials. So certainly the, 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 it is not a passe thing yet. We're going to need these passwords for a while. Multi-step verification or, or, or two-factor, depending on how you look at it, is a really big thing in terms of uh, the security controls that it gives you above and beyond a password. Because even, even in the cases where we have, say, this SIM card stolen, which could then circumvent, say, an SMS-based uh, second factor authentication, that is still a lot harder than just needing username or password. You know, this is no longer an attacker saying, uh, let's take this uh, 360 million MySpace records and just start scanning Google and MySpace and whatever else and seeing if we can log on with credentials, right? So now there is this other thing that's needed. But what we're seeing there is that as uh, multi-step verification becomes more popular, there are more attacks against it. Uh, So even just within the last week, uh, NIST came out and said, look, we really need to be moving away from SMS-based multi-step verification. You know, we need to be moving to things like, say, uh, Authy, where you have a soft token on your device. So this is sort of a continually rapidly evolving landscape and at at the moment the best thing we can do is use strong unique passwords which is a really old line but (laughs) it's kind of true and use multi-step where it's available and and on that former point as well so on those long strong passwords you're not going to be able to memorize these and everyone that says i can memorize every single password i use on every single site and it's genuinely random and it's long and strong they're either lying or they're Rain Man, right? It's one of the two. So uh, we still need things like password managers. So we need LastPass or 1Password, or these sort of products, which allow you to have one strong, unique password no one else knows and then an encrypted keychain that everything else sits in.
0: So these social logins or using Google login, whether you want to call it social or not, so I actually have a kind of a treatise where I believe this is actually a, a reason to let these companies track your location and track your different things on a more regular basis because when you're lo- when you're attempting a login to Facebook or Google, they are checking your login against an ensemble of different things, including your location data. Do you think that's a reasonable argument? Look, I, I think that
1: there is probably an unhealthy scepticism about a lot of things at the moment on, on, on the web, uh, and clearly one of those one of those things that people sort of get quite paranoid about is uh, tracking. So they're very worried that they're being tracked because, uh, Google is in everything and Facebook is in everything and so on and so forth. And there is inevitably a degree of that. I think that the the question is people got to sort of go, okay, well, you know, what is, what is the realistic impact of that? Uh, so is it that they're, they're, they're seeing what I have for breakfast and they're, they're knowing deeply personal things about me? Uh, or is it that I'm getting ads that are just a little bit more tailored to, to what it is that I do? And, In all honesty, I think it is way more the latter than what it is the former. And I I appreciate the desire for (laughs) conspiracy theories and all the rest of it. But when you sort of look at it in face value and say uh, there is this option here for a website to say rather than creating another bad username and password, you can use uh, something that you've already got that's quite solid where they do do a really good job of security with the likes of Google and Facebook as well as opposed to uh, trying to create something new, which for most people is going to be a new account with a reused credential that's then going to be stored with a site that is not going to do as good a job of actually storing this information. Uh, And because it's reused, when that site gets hacked, it's going to put the Gmail account at risk as well. And when you sort of look at things on a a more kind of balanced perspective, I guess, like that, uh, suddenly it starts to make a lot more sense. So I think we're sort of possibly... um, possibly also come to the realisation, particularly with younger generations that are these internet natives, you know, never having known a time without internet, there's a greater tolerance uh, for tracking and that the fact that, that your activities are, are going to be very online-centric, they're going to be joined up. So I, I think sort of as, as we get more people that have grown up with that uh, and those of us that have been around for a little bit longer become a little bit more accustomed to it, that that concern will probably wane a bit.
0: Right, so we grew up on... Uh, perhaps half of our lives or one-third of our lives with Internet and the other half without Internet. And in that percentage of time where we did not have Internet, we were also exposed to things like 1984 and Brave New World, which we have perhaps over-indexed on and believe in a a little more. uh, I don't know. I feel like those books uh, presaged a time that uh, doesn't seem to be really coming to fruition. Maybe some elements of it, but Um, I digress. Um, (laughs) So if, if a financial institution gets hacked, is it a straightforward process for the hacker to drain somebody's bank account?
1: Look there's so many variables here, and and you know, even just sort of think for yourself when you're doing online banking, uh, all this sort of checks and balances and security controls, think about the times where uh, perhaps you've travelled overseas and oh, I' got a phone call from my bank, they're watching. They're somehow monitoring what is normal behaviour and they know when things go wrong. Uh, banks have an enormous array of security controls in place to help protect customers. And very often uh, when it goes wrong, you know, it's it, it can be painful for them. But banks are also very good at doing fraud protection and and, and sort of sending people their money back if if there's a, a flaw on their end as well. Uh, perfect example, uh, my wife had a credit card uh, somehow obtained recently, uh, just a credit card number. And fraudulent transactions pop up. Uh, we learn about it. Bank gives money back, sends a new card, business as usual. Uh, so in many cases, it, it's pretty pain free. There are other cases, of course, where things get a little bit nastier and we're actually seeing accounts drained of money. But usually that's a combination of, uh, of bad practices on the user's behalf, so maybe reuse credentials, for example, and uh, various different attacks such as uh, theft of mag stripes, uh, which, which uh, unfortunately you guys in the US is, are still a little bit too fond of. <laughs> We've got to get with the picture and move to those chip and pins. So we see theft of um, theft of attributes like that. Uh, recently, we've seen some really ingenious attacks for very large amounts of money uh, related to uh, SWIFT, uh, so this, uh, this this banking system that allows the interchange of, of money across countries. And we've seen uh, attacks in the tens of millions of dollars sometimes, uh, which is at, at those numbers more against the banks themselves than the individuals. But it it just sort of goes to show that um, there is always going to always going to be people out there that have uh, that have the creativeness and the capability to work out ways to extract money.
0: Yeah, those MagStripe attacks. I've seen these things where basically a hacker walks into a convenience store or a supermarket and installs a MagStripe copier reader thingy on top of the pre existing. Uh, payment thing, so like the place where you swipe your credit card, they just they plop an additional device on top of it and nobody notices, um, which is just
1: cra- crazy. Yeah, skimmers. So skimmers, skimmers, are, um, right? <laughs> they're. <sighs> Look, I mean, I was going to say impressive. Maybe impressive is not the right word. But, look, you know what I mean? From a pure <laughs> engineering perspective, you look at it and go, that's pretty clever. <laughs> you know, that's very, very smart. Because they're often uh, obviously capturing the, the digital data that's on the cards, but then they might combine that with things like secreted cameras in order to capture the pin that's being entered on the card as well. And some of them are uh, are enormously effective. And, and banks have anti-skimming devices that are normally physical controls so devices that uh, for example make it difficult to fit a skimmer over the top of it and attackers just go okay well you just you just move the bar uh, so now we're going to raise uh, raise up that <laughs> level and we're going to create a more advanced skimmer uh, just a few weeks ago actually there was a really interesting one and I think it was somewhere in Italy and this uh, this this person's uh, using their their phone and they're saying look I just discovered this have a look at this and they're in this like really busy piazza or something and they walk over to the to the ATM and it looks like a normal ATM and they grab the slot where you put the card in and they jiggle it until it pops off. And there's oh like God. an identical one underneath it. And this one is obviously just a fraction larger to fit over the top uh, and it's all self-contained with its own battery pack and everything and and that's what it is. And at 3 a.m. someone will walk by and they'll pick that up and they'll, they'll take all the card data and and then there you go.
0: Wow. Have you looked at Stuxnet at all? So that Stuxnet
1: is a really interesting one, and I, I guess for, for people listening, if they're not aware of the, the background, there this was uh, this was malicious software uh, discovered. It must have been about 2011, uh, which uh, ultimately transpired to be uh, software which was designed to impact industrial control systems running nuclear uh, uranium enrichment centrifuges uh, in Iran. And the, the, the popular sentiment is that it's uh, a, a likely Israeli-US uh, combined uh, attack, which was designed to make the centrifuges uh, spin at, a, at speeds they weren't meant to, which was detrimenting Iran's um, uh, nuclear capabilities. And that was really, really heavy duty, full on uh, what we would call cyber war, for want of a better term where it is nation states uh, using digital exploits against another nation state, which is it, it's probably not unprecedented because there's certainly been uh, digital warfare in that regard, but the sophistication of it was, was just amazing. And when you sort of read these, these teardowns of how this software actually worked and the fact that it had to work across air gaps as well, so it's not like you go to Shodan and you search for nuclear uranium enrichment in Iran and you just get the, <laughs> you know, you get centrifuges. They had to get this on-site into premises which were not, uh, not connected through to the web, which would involve all sorts of other uh, social engineering tricks and, and other mechanisms in order to distribute a payload to systems that they couldn't otherwise talk directly to. And that is it. it Is a it is fascinating, and it's also kind of scary as a bit of an insight into into where we're going to be heading with this sort of thing in the future, too.
0: Yeah, and you know the there was this movie that came out recently. uh, I encourage listeners to check it out. I don't often recommend movies on this podcast, but it's a movie called Zero Days that's about this Stuxnet. Uh, fiasco stuff, and one of the premises of the movie is that Stuxnet laid this foundation for cyber war, this recipe for uh for cyber criminals or um you know rogue nations to follow. And the idea is is basically, oh, if you can find three or four zero days and coordinate them, and you have a giant software team, you two can execute a feat on par with Stuxnet. And I was watching this, and I was like, I mean, I guess that's true, but the way that they presented it was, was fairly alarmist, and I felt like... Actually, like the watching the movie, I actually felt more secure than my perception uh, before I knew more about Stuxnet because mm. when I heard about Stuxnet I was like, oh my god, they're hacking the centrifuges, they're blowing up stuff in, in real life. But when I actually saw the movie and I realized how much engineering had to go into it, I realized actually this is this is about as hard to do as like creating a successful startup. <laughs> uh, I mean does, um, does that does that seem accurate to you or does it seem like actually or did you get the perception that that our systems really are that much more vulnerable maybe you don't need three zero days and a huge team of NSA. Uh, genius hackers.
1: I I would really like to think that hacking a nuclear power plant is much harder than a startup, (laughs) (laughs) simply because there are quite a number of startups out there that have done quite well. (laughs) That's true. There's a lot that fail, but I would hate to think that there are that many nuclear power plants being hacked. Um, Look, it it depends on the level that you're looking at. And when we're talking about something like Stuxnet and we're talking about state-sponsored Uh, hacking with uh, huge budgets. The NSA has got 11 or $12 billion a year worth of budget, for example, which is a lot of money. Uh, That kind of level of sophistication is massive. And I sort of feel quite comfortable in one regard that, look, it's not 15-year-old kids sitting at home doing that. Yet, on the other hand, having um, full recognition that there are nation states that aren't always friendly to the likes of the US and Australia uh, that are developing these capabilities. But that is really an extreme end of the security space. And and back at the other end, you're back at the 15-year-old kids hacking into multinationals who've just done a bad job of protecting their assets. And when you look at that level and you look at how bad so much security is online, and I, I mean, I see stuff every single day where I just shake my head and go, what were you thinking? I've got endless, endless, endless material on this. Uh, that sort of scares me a little bit more because I know how bad that's just so much of the web really is at the moment. Mm.
0: Okay, well, let's segue into IoT because uh, you know one thing that happens uh, in this Stuxnet movie where they describe, they're talking about Stuxnet, it's really interesting is the virus, the Stuxnet virus, What it does is it records the data that the centrifuges are uh, giving off when they are acting normally. And it actually records that data and then replays it while the virus is screwing up the centrifuges themselves. So it's this actually, that's that is actually something that totally terrified me because I realized, wow, that is a recipe that you could apply to all kinds of IoT hacking. Uh, in circumstances that are not air-gapped, like the type of circumstances that you described earlier with IoT. Um, and that just made me think, like, oh, my God, these IoT systems are, are a disaster waiting to happen, or maybe they're not. I mean, tell me what your impression is of how secure the IoT systems that are in place today are. What are the big challenges for securing the oncoming IoT uh, bright future?
1: Well, the reality of it is often they're pretty bad. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Uh, one of them I was involved in earlier this year. In fact, I was running a, a security class in Norway. And part of, of what I do in these in these workshops is we look at how you can inspect the way that your mobile phone is talking to services. And one of the guys in my class, uh, he was obviously a bit inspired because he went back to his hotel room. And he's pulled out the app to control uh, features of his Nissan Leaf. So the Nissan Leaf is this little electronic vehicle, very popular in places like Norway. Uh, And he uses that to turn on his heater before he gets in the car, pull his trip history, check his battery status, (laughs) you know, stuff like this. And what he found is that the only means of authentication uh, and and then identification of which vehicle to talk to uh, was the VIN number. And the the VIN number is is, first of all, the thing that is printed in the windscreen outwardly facing of the vehicle. Ah. And second of all, it's the thing that you can really, really easily enumerate. So you can just keep incrementing by one and then you get another vehicle every now and then.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So he discovered this and uh, he came into the class the next day and he was pretty excited. <laughs> and we kind of went through and dissected it and went, yep, this is actually actually the case. You can uh, control features of other vehicles. You can mechanically turn things on and off in a car by just simply adding one. Like this is the level of sophistication. Can you count? Yes, okay, <laughs> now you can control someone else's vehicle. And that, uh, that's a really good example of just how bad it can be in terms of the ease of finding uh, risks and also the ease of exploiting them. Uh, And and then off the back of that, what sort of made the whole thing worse was uh, we couldn't get Nissan to do anything about it. So I was talking to them very, very early on. I think I I emailed them the next day. I spoke to them the week after, explained exactly what it was. And uh, a month later, they hadn't done anything. So very often, you find that these organisations are just uh, reticent to actually uh, act on some of these risks as well. They didn't think it was a big problem. Uh, once it was all over the news headlines, well, then they thought it was a big problem, uh, and and they disabled the service. But it just sort of goes to show as well how how little importance many organisations put on security. Not not just at the point where they're building the systems, and they th- they should be thinking about it proactively. But even once they know something is wrong.
0: Well, these industrial companies are becoming technology companies. They have to. And there's all this pain and friction associated with that. We actually had a a full episode about car hacking a while ago. And that was another terrifying one. (laughs) Um, So obviously VIN number is not the way to authenticate yourself into a car. What about What are the credential systems for IoT? Do they look anything different than the paradigm we have now? I mean, you're saying we don't have anything better than usernames and passwords. Is that what we have when we're controlling our assembly line or our uh, printing press or whatever we're controlling with the Internet of Things? Well, look, you've got
1: more options available when you're talking about physical devices as well. I mean, you could be doing things like issuing certificates and and you've got to have this certificate on the device, Uh, otherwise uh, otherwise the connection won't be made. But, uh, like, let's just remember where the bar is as well. The stuff that's getting exploited and things like the Nissan case, it wasn't that there was weak authentication or bad password choice. There was no authentication. That is where the bar is. Right? So, we've got to get to the point where people are saying, hang on a second, like this thing that I'm connecting to the internet, be that uh, a kettle where there's been vulnerabilities, the car's had vulnerabilities, or even a toilet where we've seen vulnerabilities, all of these things that are simply client devices talking over the web. And in that regard, it's no different to what we had 20 years ago when it was browsers talking over HTTP in, in particular. Uh, particular mechanism or particular um, uh, protocols and expecting p- responses in a particular style. And, and now all we've got is you've got cases where, look, it is a mobile phone with a rich client app. It's making HTTP or HTTPS requests and it's getting JSON back. And, you know, the, the security profile of that is really no different to I'm here with a browser clicking around on links. And what we've got to remember is that all of that communication from those devices is easy to discover. It's easy to manipulate, and people will look at it.
0: Hmm. Uh, you know, as we're nearing the end of our conversation, I want to talk a little more about data breaches because it is the topic that you are, an, it is a topic you are an expert on. You obviously have have I been pwned, which is uh, you know your your pet project. And uh, how how can organizations get better at handling data breaches. Do do organizations need to be engaging more with the data breach ecosystem? What are some techniques that a large organization should keep in mind uh, to proactively be ready for data breaches?
1: Well, uh, one thing is, is exactly what you said, actually, proactively be ready, because what tends to happen is is a data breach uh, always comes as a surprise, right? So no one is expecting to wake up and find their data all over Pastebin. But one of the things that's really important is, uh, do they actually have the resources available when that happens to, to act uh, act expeditiously and act responsibly? And, and even little things like, do you actually have the ability to email all your customers at the drop of a hat? Now, this could be tens or even hundreds of millions of people. Uh, and sending that many emails uh, on, a, on a sort of emergency basis can actually be really hard. That's just one simple example. Uh, of course the other thing is is actually having the ability to go through and dissect what has actually happened with this incident so you know, can they can they go through and pull the relevant logs and pull the relevant history to try and understand uh, what actually happened you know uh, where did they where do they come from how do they get in what do they do once they're in there and it, it's interesting also to have a look at the way some organizations are evolving around uh, I think as you put it engaging with this data breach ecosystem. Uh, So, for example, uh, Amazon and several other very large players are actively obtaining data breaches, going through that and scanning that uh, against their existing customer base. So Amazon has been sending uh, emails, say, to people in in the LinkedIn data breach saying, hey, you were in the LinkedIn data breach with the same credentials that you used on Amazon. Uh, As a precautionary measure, we've reset your password. Please go and set it again. And I find that really interesting because we're talking about mainstream, above board companies actively going and obtaining hacked data, but in an effort to better protect their customers, which I think is usually a positive thing. I've, I've seen it done in ways that I don't think is very positive <laughs> as well. But it's that that is a really interesting trend.
0: Hmm, beautiful. What's been the impact of your website "Have I Been Pwned" on the data breach ecosystem? Look, it's it, it's interesting. It's probably
1: probably had multiple impacts. I, I think the thing that kind of stands out most to me, though, is when data when a data breach does become broadly socialized and people know that it's happened, we do see that having downward pressure on the price of the data when it's being sold on black markets. And part of the reason for that is that the data is most valuable whilst people are still using the same credentials. So, you know, if we think about sort of zero hour after an attack where an attacker has this data, every username and password in there presently works on that site, a large proportion of them are going to work on other sites. That's really, really valuable. And then as time goes by, people start changing passwords, particularly once there's press about it and it ends up on a site like have I been pwned, it ends up in the news and people go, oh, wow, like uh, such and such just got hacked. Wow, okay, I better change my password now the value of that account suddenly goes down. And when that happens en masse, the value of the overall data breach goes down as well. So I, would, uh, I, I sort of like the, the fact that giving it publicity in this way makes it harder for people to go and exploit the information and, and then inevitably makes it less valuable to
0: them. Mm. Okay. You are teaching some courses on Plural Pluralsight. Um, to close off, I'd love to know what you are trying to accomplish with those courses. What are the things that you are trying to impart upon the viewers of your courses? Yeah, look, uh, so I've got,
1: oh, geez, a couple of dozen courses now on Pluralsight. And the, the real goal with most of these is particularly to try and help technology professionals understand how these risks work So there are some very uh, high level courses, for example, which sort of say, look, this is the mechanics of a SQL injection attack. Uh, And it's consumable in small sort of bytes of information at at a high level. Uh, Others get very down into detail where it's like, "Okay, so you're an ASP.NET developer and you're building an application. This is what your code should look like. Uh, And more importantly, this is what vulnerable code looks like. And even more importantly, here's what it actually looks like to exploit it. And this is one of the things I really like imparting people in people my, in my courses and in the workshops I run as well, where it's like uh, this is the way the attack actually happens. Um, here's how to do it. Now that you understand it, you're going to be a lot more invested in actually protecting your systems. And I, I think that's really important because very often we see people sort of say, oh, yeah, you know, I should be resilient to SQL injection, but never really kind of getting why it is such a big thing. Uh, and that's what I do a lot of in these events courses and events
0: right okay troy well thanks for your time this has been a great conversation i really enjoyed it and i particularly enjoyed preparing for this episode because (laughs) your videos are super entertaining uh i love your site it's a great public resource so uh keep up the great work and thanks for coming on the show
1: awesome thank you very much for the invite
0: thanks to symphono for sponsoring software engineering daily Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com/se daily. That's s y m p h o n o dot com/se daily. Thanks again, Symphono.
1: Wow.